Good morning, guys. We've got a, a cozy group here this morning. Uh, you know, last week, uh, Mike and I were, were both preaching, did a tag team, and he made a comment at one point that this week might be a little more of a traditional Christmas message. Um, and I'm not, honestly, not totally sure what traditional even means for a Christmas message. Uh, so I'm not sure if this is a traditional message or not. It might be a little bit more in some ways, and it might not be in some other ways. Um, I guess it just it depends on how you define traditional. Uh, but we are going to be taking a break from the book of Isaiah that we've been going through for several weeks now. Uh, we've covered already through the book of Isaiah, we've talked about a ton of the, the themes and the prophecies in Isaiah that connect to Jesus and therefore to you know, the advent of Jesus or the Christmas story, as we call it. So we're taking a break from that. Uh, we're not going to be reading anything from Isaiah uh, this morning. In fact, we won't be reading anything from the Old Testament at all. We're going to be spending all our time in the New Testament. And I don't remember when the last time <laughs> that we actually did that was, because we typically, we've been going through the Old Testament for years now, um, and we typically kind of jump back and forth. But we're going to spend all our time in the New Testament, and specifically um, the Gospels, uh, or the, the books of the Gospel, because that's where we find the Christmas story, right? Um, so first, before we get into it, I have a, a quick pop quiz for you guys. And there's not many of you, so it's gonna, the, the burden is on you to, <laughs> to answer these questions. Because uh, I can't see you. Maybe, oh, probably everyone watching on YouTube will know every you know, answer, but they can't, they can't prove it here. So um, first of all, this, is, this should be an easy one. How many Gospels are there? Four. That's your fingers. Four. Okay, and now that is kind of a trick question because there's really only one gospel, right? There's the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? And there's the gospel according to, and then four different writers of the gospel. But we call them the gospels. Um, and so they're, they're from four different people, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are what we call the four gospels. Um, now here's, here's kind of a nerdy one. How many synoptic gospels are there? Anyone know? Let's see, three, yeah. So three synoptic, which, which ones are they? Which are the synoptic ones? No? Matthew, Mark, and Luke are everyone but John. So the, the synoptic gospels kind of give a synopsis of the story. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all kind of have a similar perspective, and John is just kind of, out there with, you know, he, he doesn't contradict anything in the others, but the, his approach is way more um, abstract or conceptual. It's just, it's different. Um, so now of, of the four Gospels, that was just kind of not totally relevant, just curious if anyone knew. Um, of the Gospels, which ones tell the Christmas story about Jesus, his birth, how he was born? Matthew and Luke. He says Luke, yeah, so it's just those two, Matthew and Luke. And of the two, Luke is by far way more comprehensive. He gives way more details um, than Matthew. Matthew gives a much more brief account of the, of the story, but he also he does include a couple details that Luke doesn't include. Um, and this morning, I really just wanted to read through the whole Christmas story. Uh, so the bulk of our reading is going to be in the book of Luke. Uh, so if you want to find your place there to follow along, uh, we'll be reading mostly in Luke. But I will be mixing in uh, those additional details that we get in Matthew. Um, so I'll let you know when I'm switching over from, from Luke to Matthew. And we're going to be reading a lot. <laughs> we're we're going to cover the whole thing from, you know, Luke's, he gives the whole backstory. And I'm going to read through it all. So it's going to be in some ways a little bit different because most of this is going to be reading through scripture, and it's going to be a little bit less of me, of less exposition than usual, um, and more more just story time, I guess. Um, but I will be I'll be interjecting because I have to interject my thoughts and, and comments throughout the whole thing. Hopefully, it won't, you know, disrupt the flow of the story too much. And there's as we read through the Christmas story, there are so many tangent tangential roads that we could go on. Uh, to discuss, you know, and, and they're good roads. They're great discussions. And we've been down some of those in years past. We've talked about, you know, specific elements of the story, pretty much any one element you could pick out and, and make a whole sermon out of it, really. But I wanted to kind of stick to the main road today 
and cover enough ground. You know, <laughs> this is something that I know Mike will probably tease me about later that I chose to take, take on the entire Christmas story and cover so much ground. I just want to make sure he can make fun of me later. So with all that said, um, let's, we're going to dive into this story time, and I hope you enjoy just listening to God's Word as much as I did. I really enjoyed just studying it and, and reading it in preparation. Let's, let's pray first, and then, and then we'll start reading. Lord, Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this, this time that we have together. I thank you for this season that reminds us to celebrate the advent of your birth and the incredible gift that that is. I just pray that you would bless our time this morning that we are spending reading your word, reading the story of how you came to the earth, how you were born. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we're going to be reading in Luke, and we're going to be starting right at the beginning, chapter 1, verse 1 in Luke. And I chose to read today um, out of the New Living Translation uh, because it's the New Living Translation just lends really well to the flow of the narrative and to you know just a really easy, fluid English reading. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They use the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the, very, uh, from the early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. So just to pause here, Luke's kind of little introduction to his, his uh, telling of the story. And it's just important to keep in mind how methodical and research-driven Luke is. He's, he's going to, in the, the pages to come, craft a really beautifully told story, very dynamic and compelling narrative. He's a really good storyteller. That's one thing that really struck me this year reading through Luke is just how brilliant he is as a storyteller. So I'm going to probably say that again a few times. Um, but he also has this meticulous attention to historical accuracy and to detail. Um, he's, you know, Luke, we know that he's a historian here. Uh, but we also know that he was a physician by trade. And to be interested in both of those kind of realms takes a certain kind of person. Um, he's, he's pragmatic. He's, um, facts are important to him. He studies facts and He's not what you would think of as maybe the opposite of that. Maybe someone having their head in the clouds all the time or very fanciful and whimsical and you never really can trust anything he says. No, he's, he's a by-the-book, factual type of person. So having that in mind, I just want you to pay attention to how many times Luke just confidently asserts details as a matter of fact in this story that we would consider very you know, unlikely or shocking or even impossible Luke just says very confidently, this happened. All right. So continuing on, this is where he really starts the story. When Herod was king of Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah. He was a member of the priestly order of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also from the priestly line of Aaron. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes careful to obey all of the Lord's commandments and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive, and they were both very old. One day, Zechariah was serving God in the temple, for his order was on duty that week. As was the custom of the priests, he was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. I will make a quick note that that was a very rare opportunity for a priest and if they ever got it, it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. They could never do it again. While the incense was being burned, a great crowd stood outside, praying. While Zechariah was in the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the incense altar. Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him. But the angel said, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife, Elizabeth, will give you a son, and you are to name him John. 
You will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. And he will turn, turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. Zechariah said to the angel, How can I be sure this will happen? I am an old man now, and my wife is also well along in years. And the angel said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God. It was he who sent me to bring you this good news. But now, since you didn't believe what I said, you will be silent and unable to speak until the child is born. For my words will certainly be fulfilled at the proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah to come out of the sanctuary, wondering why he was taking so long. When he finally did come out, he couldn't speak to Then they realized from his gestures and his silence that he must have seen a vision in the sanctuary. When Zechariah's week of service in the temple was over, he returned home. Soon after, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and went into seclusion for five months. How kind the Lord is, she explained. He has taken away my disgrace of having no children. All right, so Luke started off this this book by saying he's going to tell the story of Jesus, right? But so far, there's no mention of Jesus. It's just Zechariah and, and his wife Elizabeth and this whole thing with the angel. And there's a ton of stuff in there that, you know, I'm not going to spend too much time talking about that. Uh, but there's a reason Luke included all of this. And we're going to see him kind of transition uh, and, and tie it all together in the, in the coming paragraphs. The next sentence says, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. I just think this is such a cool transition because he goes from Elizabeth and uses her pregnancy to give you the timeline. It's been six months. And then he takes another character that we've, we just saw with Zechariah, the angel Gabriel, this messenger of Yahweh. And then this Gabriel introduces us to this new setting, this Nazareth in, in Galilee. And then it, this introduces this new human character, Mary. And then by calling her a virgin, in the, and this is all in the first sentence, he calls her a virgin. And in that cultural context also implies that she would have been a, very, a young woman, a teenager, so we have, you know, this transition to a new place, a new setting, a new character, all in one sentence. And then in the next sentence, he gives us this loaded backstory of how she's engaged to this guy, Joseph, um, and that this guy is a descendant of King David, which would have been a very positive thing, by the way. To marry into the line of David uh, would have been a, a desirable thing. Not that he was, you know, in line to be king or anything like that, but still it was considered an honorable thing to have that ancestry because you know that the Messiah is is promised to come through the line of David and there's the Davidic covenant and the whole um, the promises to David that we've talked about. Joseph is a, is a humble carpenter, a tradesman, um, but Mary, uh, as we know from other you know context, was came from an even more poor and lowly family. So she was you know she had a pretty good thing going here uh, where she was going to be marrying a, a steady worker and someone from the line of David. You know kind of stepping up a little bit in the world. And then she gets this visit from Gabriel. Gabriel appeared to her, Luke says, and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. I like, I, you know, your translations might have other words there. I think confused and disturbed, though, I, I kind of like that choice of words because I'm sure any of us would, in that situation, be all very confused and disturbed. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. 
He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor, David. And he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, But how can this happen? I am a virgin. The angel replied, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was barren, but she has conceived a son and is now in her sixth month. For the word of God will never fail. So only now Luke finally mentions Elizabeth and thereby kind of brings up that connection between Elizabeth and Mary. He starts off with Zechariah and Elizabeth and then switches over to Mary. Oh, by the way, they're related. Kind of like when you're watching a movie and it's showing you two different people's lives and you're like, what, what's going on here? And then all of a sudden you find out that they have some connection to each other and it's like, oh, cool. That's kind of what Luke is doing here. That's why I think it's just, he's such a good storyteller. You have these two seemingly unrelated scenes. Suddenly, you know, they're coming together. Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And then the angel left her. That's just such an incredible response. You know, the angel tells her this crazy news. She's going to, she's a virgin, but she's going to conceive and give birth to the Messiah. Uh, and she says, okay, <laughs> I am the Lord's servant. May everything you've said about me come true. It's, I just don't think we can overstate how amazing that is and how humble and um, just receptive uh, Mary was. Um, and, and kind of a side note, you know, I think some Christian traditions, as we know, have become overly infatuated with Mary. Um, and in other traditions, we tend to kind of swing the pendulum, overcompensate too much and, and ignore Mary a little bit too much. I think in Baptist backgrounds, especially in other similar traditions, um, we tend not to give Mary enough credit. I think we should kind of ponder how incredible she is sometimes. Again, that could, you know, be a whole, that's a whole other tangent. So back to the story. The angel left Mary, and a few days later, Mary hurried to the hill country of Judea, the town where Zechariah lived. She entered the house and greeted Elizabeth. So with these two sentences, the stories come full circle. We're back to where we started with Zechariah. She goes to Zechariah's town, and she is greeting Elizabeth. And here at this point, Keep that, put a mental bookmark and, and actually a bookmark in your Bible at this spot. Um, and remember that Elizabeth or Mary is greeting Elizabeth because uh, we're going to now check in with Joseph. Luke doesn't really mention <laughs> Joseph's perspective in all this at all. Just that Mary was engaged to him. But Luke doesn't say anything about how Joseph handled this or how, you know, what he was thinking. So to get that, we have to go to Matthew. And this is one of the things that Matthew includes that Luke didn't. So we find this in Matthew chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 18. And this is after Matthew gives his whole genealogy of, um, of Joseph, uh, he, uh, well, of Jesus. He then goes into his version of the Christmas story, which is quite brief, but we do get Joseph's perspective. So Matthew 1.18 says, This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly. So he decided to break the engagement quietly. Obviously, Joseph was in a really tough spot. You know, no one was going to believe Mary's story, this crazy story of this encounter with the divine being and the fact that she's somehow miraculously uh, pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit, no one would be expected to believe her. You know, no one can fault him uh, for thinking that she was, in fact, a sinful woman trying to just cover up her sin. So he's kind of faced with this moral dilemma because he doesn't want to stay and, and, and become married to this sinful woman, but he also doesn't want to publicly humiliate her and bring about all of that 
shame. And I'm sure there was a close circle of friends that knew at some point it would become obvious, you know, uh, and, you know, he probably had friends who were telling him just get, you know, run away. Like, this is obviously a bad idea. And she probably had friends who didn't believe her. We can only speculate about what her parents thought. Um, they would have been considered very normal for them to totally disown her. Um, and she would have been kind of on her own. So Joseph doesn't want that. He, he wants to preserve her uh, dignity as much as possible, but he also doesn't want to violate himself and, and his own purity. He's, he's a righteous man. He follows the Torah. Uh, so he's stuck between a rock and a hard place. As he considered this, as he considered is probably, you know, as he was agonizing over this is probably more like what it was. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So Matthew points out this prophecy, and we talked about this prophecy at length a couple weeks ago. But notice that Matthew, in telling his, his story, uh, his version of the story, uh, he's more interested in pointing out so many of the prophecies that were fulfilled, whether they're from Isaiah or, or Micah, or other prophets. Um, so notice that about Matthew. And when Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife. But he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born. And Joseph named him Jesus. So Joseph remained engaged to Mary, which the engagements back then in their culture were a bit different from ours because they were just as legally binding as an actual marriage. The only difference really was that the marriage was not yet consummated. And it's because they could be legally, you know, engaged, betrothed, bound together, even before they were of age to be really married and consummate the marriage. So that, but they were legally bound together, which is why they used the word divorce. You know, Joseph considered divorcing her because it would have been, uh, it had to go through a whole legal process to process a divorce, just like it would be for a marriage. But even though, the, even though they weren't married, um, he remained legally uh, completely committed and bound to her. Uh, and then it says specifically in Matthew that Joseph named her son Jesus. And that's significant because that naming of the child is an act of, of ownership in the sense that, you know, he was publicly saying, this is my son and I'm taking full responsibility for him, even though he knew, he knew that he wasn't his biological son. So I think, you know, in, in comparing both of these accounts, uh, Mary's perspective and Joseph's perspective, it's just amazing. And I think they deserve a ton of respect for how they handled this whole situation. We're going to go back to Luke now, uh, still in chapter 1, uh, picking back up in verse 41. Remember now, Mary is greeting Elizabeth in Zechariah and Elizabeth's town. At the sound of Mary's greeting, Elizabeth's child leaped within her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth gave a glad cry and exclaimed to Mary, God has blessed you above all women. And your child is blessed. Why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord should visit me? When I heard your greeting, the baby in my womb jumped for joy. You are blessed because you believe that the Lord would do what he said. Mary responded, Oh, how my soul praises the Lord. How my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he took notice of this of his lowly servant girl, and from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one is holy, and he has done great things for me. He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and haughty ones. He has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, and sent the rich away with empty hands. 
He has helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful. For he made this promise to our ancestors, to Abraham and his children, forever. So this response from Mary is referred often to as the Magnificat, and that just comes from the Latin uh, reference to it. It's, it's just a beautiful song of praise to Yahweh. Uh, and it actually, it is very similar if you compare this to Hannah's song uh, back in uh, 1 Samuel. There's a lot of similarities to Hannah's song and Mary's song. And you really could spend all day just kind of meditating on this and, and pondering it. Uh, it's, you know, if we were watching, if you're watching a musical, you know, this is like the song at the point in the musical where you're like, oh, I got to look that up again and then listen to it and then look at the lyrics and memorize the lyrics because it's so good. Um, but for now, we got to keep watching and you know, continue the story. Mary stayed with Elizabeth about three months and then went back to her own home. When it was time for Elizabeth's baby to be born, she gave birth to a son. When her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had been very merciful to her, everyone rejoiced with her. So remember that Elizabeth was about six months pregnant when Mary went to visit her. So it's about three months later now that Elizabeth is full term and gave birth to a son. When the baby was eight days old, they all came to the circumcision ceremony, all these uh, the neighbors and relatives. They wanted to name him Zechariah after his father, but Elizabeth said, no, his name is John. What? They exclaimed. There's no one in all your family by that name. So they used gestures to ask the baby's father what he wanted to name him. He motioned for a writing tablet, and to everyone's surprise, he wrote, his name is John. So these people, their friends and neighbors, they think Elizabeth is totally crazy uh, because she's saying his name is John and there's no one in his family named John. Usually you'd name his son after the father or the grandfather maybe. Um, so they think even, they think surely Zechariah must have a better idea even though he's the, the mute one and the fact that they were gesturing to him kind of implies he may have also been deaf temporarily as, at the time that he was all mute because um, otherwise they could have just asked him, right? But even though he's, he's probably deaf and mute, um, they think, all right, Zechariah must have a better idea, but no, he writes down John, and, it, and then it says, instantly after he did that, Zechariah could speak again, and he began praising God. All fell upon the whole neighborhood, and the news of what had happened spread throughout the Judean hill. So we see this, this burden of, of being mute was lifted from Zechariah in this demonstration of his faith to God. And he finally you know, believed the angel um, and said, his name is John. And everyone who heard about it reflected on these events and asked, what will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was surely upon him in a special way. I just want to point out that these events that we're talking about, you know, and remember, this is Luke, again, writing about these things. These, everything that's happening was just as bizarre and unexpected to the people observing it and experiencing it as, as it sounds to us today. Uh, you know, just because it happened in biblical times, you know, it's in the Bible, doesn't mean that people in those times actually expected biblical things to happen <laughs> You know, uh, especially not after, you know, this is 400 years after the end of the exile, the, the period between the, the return from the exile and Jesus, 400 years. And we don't have any um, record of major acts from God or, or big, great prophets that came on the scene. So there's been a long time since um, anything crazy like this has happened. So keep that in mind as we get to the next paragraph which says, Then his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and gave this prophecy. Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and redeemed his people. He has sent us a mighty Savior from the royal line of his servant David, just as he promised through his holy prophets long ago. Now we will be saved from our enemies and from all who hate us. He has been merciful to our ancestors by remembering his sacred covenant, the covenant he swore with an oath to our ancestor Abraham. We have been rescued from our enemies so we can serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness for as long as we live. 
And you, my little son, will be called the prophet of the Most High. Kind of interesting. He's prophesying about a prophet. Prophetception. Because you will prepare the way of the Lord. You will tell his people how to find salvation through forgiveness of their sins. Because of God's tender mercy, the morning light from heaven is about to break upon us. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. And to guide us to the path of peace. Zechariah gives this, this prophecy that's just full of, of hope and light and joy through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then it says, John grew up and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he began his public ministry to Israel. At that time, the Roman emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So here, I think, is another just great uh, transition piece, a brilliant little transition in the story. So this this detail, you know, it's transitioning from this previous scene with John's birth, uh, while also providing kind of this historical marker, telling us that Augustus decreed the census should be taken, and it was the first one when Quirinius was governor of Syria, which that doesn't really mean much to us, but it, it provides a, an exact kind of marker for the timeline. All, all, you know, using events that were really crucial to the next scene that's about to unfold. Because of the census decree, Luke says, all returned to their own ancestral towns to register for the census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, and was still not married, who was now expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. A couple things here. The fact that she laid him in a manger indicates that, and this is probably familiar to all of us because of tradition, they were staying obviously in the same quarters as the animals were staying. Um, and but generally, you know, what's different about how we generally picture this, we picture, you know, farms in this area, the animals stay in a barn, right? And it's usually a big structure, maybe even bigger than a house. And it's kind of a big structure detached from the house. Whereas back then, oftentimes the animals lived on the first floor of a home. Uh, so you'd have the animals kind of in, in, on the dirt floor on the first floor of the home, and then people would live in above that on the second or third floor. Or sometimes it would be kind of, you know, a lot of the, the towns were built into the sides of very mountainous areas and you'd have caves kind of dug out of the rock for the animals to be in, uh, but they would be close to the home. Um, so the, the way we picture it is, is not necessarily a barn. Um, and the fact that there was no lodging available, we would expect them to, you know, this is David's ancestral, you know, hometown, and you would expect him to have some kind of, at least distant relatives or friends of family to stay with, and that's where they would be looking to stay, not necessarily a hotel or an inn, um, but because there were so many people converging on Bethlehem, you know, there would have been older people uh, than them who needed, who would be given the more comfortable accommodations. They would be staying in the, the upper rooms and the, the nicer bedrooms, Whereas they, and it wasn't that uncommon for people to sleep with the animals if they were of the lower class, um, but it definitely would not be ideal to have to give birth in, in that uh, area, in that environment. So, yeah, it's the, the idea of them kind of going door to door to looking for rooms at inns is not necessarily rooted in historical accuracy. It's probably more that they just had family members who were more important than them, and so they were given the, the less comfortable accommodations. Oh, and another cool thing about this is remember they're in um, Bethlehem. Um, as we shift to this, this next scene, 
that's um, happening. Okay, so it says that night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. So this is happening at the same time that they're getting settled in with the animals. There's these shepherds staying in the fields. And Bethlehem was David's hometown. Later on, he, he built Jerusalem or he conquered Jerusalem, um, named it Jerusalem and made his home there. Before that, before he you know went to kill Goliath and, and made his fame from there, uh, he was from Bethlehem and he was a shepherd. So we're going now to these shepherds in Bethlehem, which is exactly what David would have been doing before he became king, was watching over his flocks in maybe even the same field, uh, if not the same field, and it was the same region. So think, you know, uh, it would have been another field in Krogan or in Copenhagen. You know, it, if, you, if you're in that field, you kind of, it's the same general region. And it's kind of cool to picture these shepherds in the same place, same general area where David watched his flocks and, and protected them from lions and bears. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them. We've talked about this, the, uh, the angels of the Lord not being you know, friendly-looking, fluffy, winged creatures. They were probably very terrifying, because any time an angel appears to someone in the Bible, they're terrified. But don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. Now, a manger would have been a familiar thing for the shepherds, but to find a baby laying in a manger, not so much. And suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, Again, just intimidating, this huge, vast armies of heaven, praising God and saying, glory to God in highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. They hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph, and there was the baby lying in the manger. After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angels had said to them about this child. All who heard the shepherd's story were astonished. But Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. I always thought that was kind of a cool little note. Mary pondered these things. And how could you not? I mean, this is you would have to kind of think about all of this, uh, but it says that she kept them in her heart and thought about them often. I just think that it speaks to Mary's her character and her nature. The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. It was just as the angel had told them. Now we're into chapter 2 of Luke, uh, verse 21. We're going to keep reading. Eight days later, when the baby was circumcised, he was named Jesus, the name given him by the angel even before he was conceived. Then it was time for their purification offering, as required by the law of Moses, after the birth of a child. So his parents took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. I think this is another just example of, of Luke's intentional storytelling, because this whole paragraph being included here... Um, it shows Joseph and Mary being observant of the Torah and their dedication to the Torah. Um, but it's also an important transitioning link to the next two scenes. Um, the law of the Lord says, if a woman's first child is a boy, he must be dedicated to the Lord. And we know this is Mary's firstborn. So they offered the sacrifice required in the law of the Lord, either a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And that little detail reiterates the fact that they were you know, pretty, they were poor. You know, they didn't have the means to offer uh, the more costly sacrifice. But because of all of this, because they're being Torah observant and they're offering the sacrifice, they, that brought them to Jerusalem 
in order to do this. And that kind of transitions us to the next scene and the next character. It says, at that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was a righteous and devout, or was righteous and devout, and was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him and had revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. That day, the Spirit led him to the temple. So, when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord, as the law required, Simeon was there. So this is, you know, Luke introducing another character with just a little bit of backstory and then explaining how he was relevant to the story because he and, and Mary and Joseph kind of converged on the temple on the same day. Simeon took the child in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace as you have promised. I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory of your people Israel. Jesus' parents were amazed at what was being said about him. Again, it's just a, a prophecy of hope and joy and light, so positive. And Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary, the baby's mother, this child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall and many others to rise. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your very soul. <laughs> and that part's a little bit more disturbing, I think. What, what does that mean? Now, Anna, a prophet, was also there in the temple. Again, we're introduced to a, a, a whole other character by proximity, someone else in the temple at, on this day. She, she was the daughter of Fanuel from the tribe of Asher, and she was very old. Her husband died when they had been married only seven years. Then she lived as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but stayed there day and night, worshiping God with fasting and prayer. She came along just as Simeon was talking with Mary and Joseph, and she began praising God. She talked about the child to everyone who had been waiting expectantly for God to rescue Jerusalem. So Luke is just kind of using this opportunity to point out yet another prophetic voice, uh, the, the third in the story so far. Uh, and this is the third voice claiming that Jesus is the Messiah. When Jesus' parents had fulfilled all the requirements of the law of the Lord, they returned home to Nazareth in Galilee. There the child grew up healthy and strong. He was filled with wisdom, and God's favor was on him. And that's really where the story, where Luke's story of baby Jesus ends. Uh, the rest of the chapter kind of picks up when Jesus had grown up a little bit. He was 12, and there's a, little, a short story about that. And then chapter 3 goes on into uh, the beginning of Jesus' adult ministry. But there's one more key element that Luke didn't cover here. Um, the first one was Joseph's dream, right? So we read that in Matthew. But Matthew includes one other detail that we haven't read yet. Does anyone know off the top of your head what we're missing here? The wise men. Yeah, it's one of the classic you know, elements, images in our Christmas story, in our nativity scene, is the wise men. So to get that story, we have to go back to Matthew. So it's in Matthew chapter 2. This is after Matthew kind of gave this very brief, just basically said Jesus was born to a virgin Mary who was engaged to Joseph, uh, and then gave Joseph's perspective, and then he goes into this. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem, asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. So first of all, notice that Matthew here is not nearly as precise or concerned about you know, timelines and names and numbers, um, these historical details that Luke gives us. Um, you know, about that time and from eastern lands, 
uh, some wise men, it's, it's very, you know, it's not helpful to us when we are looking for, you know, maybe we want, oh, how many were there and what were their names? And it's, he doesn't say, he doesn't give us a number of wise men. Um, and notice they're also not called kings. So, you know, we three kings is, is totally a modern kind of, that came away later um, in, in tradition, but it's kind of just made up. Um, so we don't know how many wise men there were. They weren't kings. In fact, the Greek word here is, is um, where we get the word magi, um, in other words, magicians. <laughs> and that doesn't mean, you know, a stage magician doing tricks. These were, these were pagan sorcerers from Eastern land, astrologers uh, from maybe Persia, Babylon, um, Eastern kingdoms like that. And these are the types of men who would often serve in king's courts, uh, like we've seen, we saw that in the book of Daniel and even in Exodus with Pharaoh. Uh, but it was, it was a group of Eastern pagan uh, sorcerers and magicians, not Yahweh-worshipping kings. Um, so it's, it's a little bit different maybe how we should be picturing it. Um, anyway, Matthew doesn't tell us the numbers. He doesn't tell us the names. Dates, but notice how many times Matthew points out Old Testament prophecies that are fulfilled through the story. He already did it once in chapter one. Uh, remember, he pointed out the fulfillment of Isaiah's Emmanuel prophecy uh, in chapter one. And he's going to do it again in chapter two. He's going to point out prophecy a lot. That's what Matthew is more focused on. So King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this. The wise men asking about the king of the Jews, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the lead, leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? You know, I think often we focus on the fact that Herod was disturbed by this news, but it says all of everyone else in Jerusalem was also disturbed, uh, which means that it wasn't only Herod who heard this news, it was public news. And thanks to the magicians, because they were the ones who were asking around about it. And there's a sense that it kind of immediately planted the seed of political and social unrest. The, the, the cultural climate of that time was very tense. And on top of that, Herod had just this very violent reputation. Uh, he murdered his own family members. And if, if people thought that Herod was about to get upset, they knew that there were probably going to be widespread repercussions, which is in fact the case. But the wise men answered, in Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. And that comes from Micah 5. And then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. After this interview, the wise men went their way and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over to the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. About these gifts, you know, there's a lot of speculation and meaning that has been read into these gifts. But the one very obvious and uncontested significance about these three gifts is that they were all very valuable, very costly gifts. Um, especially, you know, for Joseph and Mary. Joseph, again, was a tradesman. Uh, and Mary came from very humble means. So these gifts were of extraordinary value. And when it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route. For God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. And this isn't Joseph's first time experiencing messages from angels. So this is a major life-changing decision to make. 
But with everything they've seen so far, uh, Joseph clearly was prepared not to hesitate, and he, did, he didn't hesitate to do whatever it took to protect his family. So it says, that night Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, I called my son out of Egypt. There's another prophecy. There were some real costs involved in this, um, kind of like there would be today, moving your whole family to a different country for a period of time. Um, there would have been, you know, just the logistics of the travel and, you know, who knows how many hours of work Joseph had to lose. <laughs> he was a carpenter um, and he couldn't do as much work on the road, let alone, you know, needing clients and, you know, trade connections for, for his work. So I, you know, we can only imagine what a financial burden that would have been. But it's funny that this major move happened right after they just got dumped with a boatload of cash from these pagan sorcerers. Uh, of course, it's also the Magi's fault in the first place that they had to move. Uh, but you can see God was taking care of them uh, through all of this. Herod found out and was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under based on the wise men's report of that star's first appearance. Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted for they are dead. So terrible, terrible event that happened, but it's, it's yet another prophecy that Matthew made a point to, to include and to point out. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Get up, the angel said. Take the child and his mother back to the land of Israel because those who are trying to kill the child are dead. So Joseph got up and returned to the land of Israel with Jesus and his mother. But when he learned that the new ruler of Judea was Herod's son, Archelaus, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned in a dream, again, he left for the region of Galilee. So the family went and lived in a town called Nazareth. This fulfilled what the prophets had said, he will be called a Nazarene. Yet another prophecy uh, being fulfilled in all of these moving around, all of that um, was to fulfill, uh, or it, it, it succeeded in fulfilling all of these prophecies that Matthew's pointing out. And really, that, that wraps up now the entirety. We've read uh, everything that the gospel writers have to say about Christmas. Uh, so between Luke and Matthew, I think you know, there's obviously a lot there. That's, that's a big story. Um, but it's, it's incredible, <laughs> and it's surprising uh, this origin story that we have for the, for the Messiah, for Emmanuel, God with us, uh, the incarnation of Yahweh coming to earth and becoming human. Um, you know, I say it's surprising, and of course it's not, for most of us, I, I think it's probably a very familiar story. We've, we've heard most of these, uh, all of these different elements of the story, but when it was first being experienced by those people and when it was first being told, it was just such an unexpected chain of events uh, in the lives of all of all. So if you think of whether it's Mary or Joseph or Zechariah and Elizabeth, uh, the shepherds, the magicians, Herod, uh, and then everyone hearing the news about all of this happening. Uh, from his very conception, the life of Jesus was just unprecedented and it was very disruptive. Jesus was disrupted in the life, the disruptive the lives of everyone he touched and continues to be. And he was disruptive, but not in the way that the Jews were really expecting their Messiah to be. Because he turned social orders upside down. Like he exalted the humble and the lowly, while himself, the creator and sustainer of the whole universe, became the most humble and vulnerable form of human possible, of a newborn baby. And I just have one final thought for this morning, something that stood out to me. It was just overwhelmingly the tone in Luke and in you know, the prophecies that Matthew brings out. Uh, oh, it's just a tone of joy. And I think that's one of the, 
that is the reason that joy is one of those words that's associated with the Christmas season. You know, it's the recognition in the midst of all this surprising um, chaos and, and confusion, the recognition of God's merciful love and his, his steadfast love, his loyalty to his promises and the provision that he, uh, his provision of salvation through Jesus. You know, we, we started calling this season the Christmas holiday um, and December 24th you know, or 25th. That's all an invention that, that came much later on. But this tradition of, of yearly celebrating the, the joy that was celebrated in Luke and, and Matthew, it's, I think it's a beautiful tradition that we have. And it's, it's a joy that transcends circumstances. Because you know, not every season of life is, and not every moment of every day even, is, uh, is enjoyable or, or fun. And you think about even Mary and Joseph, you know, their relationship was scandalous and their oppressive government forced them to travel at the most inconvenient time possible. And then this violent, murderous overlord Herod was, was hunting down their newborn baby. And that was Mary and Joseph's first Christmas season together. Uh, obviously, they didn't call it that. But I'm sure they went through a whole mixed bag of emotions during that time. And yet you see the joy of, of Mary and, and of Elizabeth and, and Joseph's obedience and his faith. And each one of us goes through all kinds of you know, various different seasons of life. And sometimes we go through different seasons of life in one day. You know? uh, and it's okay not to be happy about what's happening in every given moment. And there's a time and a season for everything, if you read in Ecclesiastes, but... In every season that we have and in every moment that we're in, we do have a reason for a joy that comes not from our circumstances and what's happening around us, but from the hope and the blessing of knowing Jesus and knowing that we have a hope uh, in our Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you again for giving us a reason to have hope, giving us a reason for joy, no matter, no matter the season or the circumstance that we, we find ourselves in. We know that we can put our, our faith in you and our hope in you and know that you are greater than anything else that we experience. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with a spirit of faith, that you would fill us with spirit of hope and that you would help us to focus on on the joy that that lives beneath the the layers of of chaos or of confusion or of sadness um, and that you know the, the joy isn't there to um, diminish our our sorrow when they when it's when it's time to be sad you know you tell us it's okay to be sad and, and to grieve and we know that even you grieve and mourn uh, when you when you are uh, pained and it's okay to experience pain and to process those things but we know that underneath all of that uh, we do not need to despair uh, though there may be seasons of um, pain and sorrow there there need not be this because there's always love and there's always hope and uh, we just thank you for the incredible gift uh, that you've given us of salvation and that we live in a, in a time and an age uh, where we can read all about you and, and uh, what you taught and I just pray that you wouldn't, wouldn't let us take, a, take that for granted uh, but that we would uh, truly come out of this uh, holiday season uh, this Christmas season with uh, an appreciation and uh, a focus on you and who you are uh, and the reason for the hope and the joy that is, is within us. And I pray that you would also help us not only to internalize this for ourselves, but that it would be in our expression of, of joy and the hope that we have that we would be able to uh, give a reason for it and uh, that it would be a light to our friends and our family and our neighbors and, and to each other that we would be able to uplift and, uh, and help each other as brothers and sisters in you. In Jesus' name I pray.
Thanks everyone for, for being here. Hope you have a wonderful week.